Chapter Eight of Warren Hastings by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The prorogation soon interrupted the discussions respecting Hastings. In the following year, those discussions were resumed. The charge touching the spoliation of the Begums was brought forward by Sheridan in a speech which was so imperfectly reported that it may be said to be wholly lost, but which was, without doubt, the most elaborately brilliant of all the productions of his ingenious mind. The impression which it produced was such as has never been equalled. He sat down, not merely amidst cheering, but amidst the loud clapping of hands, in which the lords below the bar and the strangers in the gallery joined. The excitement of the House was such that no other speaker could obtain a hearing, and the debate was adjourned. The ferment spread fast through the town. Within four-and-twenty hours, Sheridan was offered a thousand pounds for the copyright of the speech, if he would himself correct it for the press. The impression made by this remarkable display of eloquence on severe and experienced critics, whose discernment may be supposed to have been quickened by emulation, was deep and permanent. Mr. Wyndham, twenty years later, said that the speech deserved all its fame, and was, in spite of some faults of taste, such as were seldom wanting either in the literary or in the parliamentary performances of Sheridan, the finest that had been delivered within the memory of man. Mr. Fox, about the same time, being asked by the late Lord Holland what was the best speech ever made in the House of Commons, assigned the first place without hesitation to the great oration of Sheridan on the Oud charge. When the debate was resumed, the tide ran so strongly against the accused that his friends were coughed and scraped down. Pitt declared himself for Sheridan's motion, and the question was carried by a hundred and seventy-five votes against sixty-eight. The opposition, flushed with victory, and strongly supported by the public sympathy, proceeded to bring forward a succession of charges relating chiefly to pecuniary transactions. The friends of Hastings were discouraged, and having now no hope of being able to avert an impeachment, were not very strenuous in their exertions. At length the House, having agreed to twenty articles of charge, directed Burke to go before the Lords and to impeach the late Governor-General of high crimes and misdemeanours. Hastings was at the same time arrested by the sergeant-at-arms and carried to the bar of the peers. The session was now within ten days of its close. It was, therefore, impossible that any progress could be made in the trial till the next year. Hastings was admitted to bail, and further proceedings were postponed till the Houses should reassemble. When Parliament met in the following winter, the Commons proceeded to elect a committee for managing the impeachment. Burke stood at the head, and with him were associated most of the leading members of the opposition. But when the name of Francis was read, a fierce contention arose. It was said that Francis and Hastings were notoriously on bad terms, that they had been at feud during many years, that on one occasion their mutual aversion had impelled them to seek each other's lives, and that it would be improper and indelicate to select a private enemy to be a public accuser. It was urged on the other side with great force, particularly by Mr. Wyndham, that impartiality, though the first duty of a judge, had never been reckoned among the qualities of an advocate, that in the ordinary administration of criminal justice among the English, 
the aggrieved party the very last person who ought to be admitted into the jury box is the prosecutor that what was wanted in a manager was not that he should be free from bias but that he should be able well informed energetic and active the ability and information of francis were admitted and the very animosity with which he was reproached whether a virtue or a vice was at least a pledge for his energy and activity it seems difficult to refute these arguments but the inveterate hatred borne by francis to hastings had excited general disgust the house decided that francis should not be a manager pitt voted with the majority dundas with the minority in the meantime the preparations for the trial had proceeded rapidly and on the thirteenth of february seventeen eighty eight the sittings of the court commenced there have been spectacles more dazzling to the eye more gorgeous with jewellery and cloth of gold more attractive to grown-up children than that which was then exhibited at westminster but perhaps there was never a spectacle so well calculated to strike a highly cultivated a reflecting and imaginative mind all the various kinds of interest which belong to the near and to the distant to the present and to the past were collected on one spot and in one hour all the talents and all the accomplishments which are developed by liberty and civilization were now displayed with every advantage that could be derived both from cooperation and from contrast every step in the proceedings carried the mind either backward through many troubled centuries to the days when the foundations of our constitution were laid or far away over boundless seas and deserts to dusky nations living under strange stars worshipping strange gods and writing strange characters from right to left the high court of parliament was to sit according to forms handed down from the days of the plantagenets on an englishman accused of exercising tyranny over the lord of the holy city of benares and over the ladies of the princely house of oud the place was worthy of such a trial it was the great hall of william rufus the hall which had resounded with acclamations at the inauguration of thirty kings the hall which had witnessed the just sentence of bacon and the just absolution of Somers the hall where the eloquence of strafford had for a moment awed and melted a victorious party inflamed with just resentment the hall where charles had confronted the high court of justice with the placid courage which has half redeemed his fame neither military nor civil pomp was wanting the avenues were lined with grenadiers the streets were kept clear by cavalry the peers robed in gold and ermine were marshalled by the heralds under garter king at arms the judges in their vestments of state attended to give advice on points of law near a hundred and seventy lords three-fourths of the upper house as the upper house then was walked in solemn order from their usual place of assembling to the tribunal the junior baron present led the way george eliot lord heathfield recently ennobled for his memorable defence of gibraltar against the fleets and armies of france and spain the long procession was closed by the duke of norfolk earl marshal of the realm by the great dignitaries and by the brothers and sons of the king last of all came the prince of wales conspicuous by his fine person and noble bearing the grey old walls were hung with scarlet 
the long galleries were crowded by an audience such as has rarely excited the fears or the emulation of an orator there were gathered together from all parts of a great free enlightened and prosperous empire grace and female loveliness wit and learning the representatives of every science and of every art there were seated around the queen the fair-haired young daughters of the house of brunswick there the ambassadors of great kings and commonwealths gazed with admiration on a spectacle which no other country in the world could present there siddons in the prime of her majestic beauty looked with emotion on a scene surpassing all the imitations of the stage there the historian of the roman empire thought of the days when cicero pleaded the cause of sicily against verres and when before a senate which still retained some show of freedom tacitus thundered against the oppressor of africa there were seen side by side the greatest painter and the greatest scholar of the age the spectacle had allured reynolds from that easel which has preserved to us the thoughtful foreheads of so many writers and statesmen and the sweet smiles of so many noble matrons it had induced parr to suspend his labours in that dark and profound mine from which he had extracted a vast treasure of erudition a treasure too often buried in the earth too often paraded with injudicious and inelegant ostentatious but still precious massive and splendid there appeared the voluptuous charms of her to whom the heir of the throne had in secret plighted his faith there too was she the beautiful mother of a beautiful race the saint cecilia whose delicate features lighted up by love and music art has rescued from common decay there were the members of that brilliant society which quoted criticised and exchanged repartees under the rich peacock hangings of mrs montague and there the ladies whose lips more persuasive than those of fox himself had carried the westminster election against palace and treasury shone round georgiana duchess of devonshire the sergeants made proclamation hastings advanced to the bar and bent his knee the culprit was indeed not unworthy of that great presence he had ruled an extensive and populous country had made laws and treaties had sent forth armies had set up and pulled down princes and in his high place he had so borne himself that all had feared him that most had loved him and that hatred itself could deny him no title to glory except virtue he looked like a great man and not like a bad man a person small and emaciated yet deriving dignity from a carriage which while it indicated deference to the court indicated also habitual self-possession and self-respect a high and intellectual forehead a brow pensive but not gloomy a mouth of inflexible decision a face pale and worn but serene on which was written as legibly as under the picture in the council chamber at calcutta mens aequa in arduis such was the aspect with which the great proconsul presented himself to his judges his council accompanied him men all of whom were afterwards raised by their talents and learning to the highest posts in their profession the bold and strong-minded law afterwards chief justice of the king's bench 
the more humane and eloquent dallas afterwards chief justice of the common pleas and plummer who near twenty years later successfully conducted in the same high court the defence of lord melville and subsequently became vice-chancellor and master of the rolls but neither the culprit nor his advocates attracted so much attention as the accusers in the midst of the blaze of red drapery a space had been fitted up with green benches and tables for the commons the managers with burke at their head appeared in full dress the collectors of gossip did not fail to remark that even fox generally so regardless of his appearance had paid to the illustrious tribunal the compliment of wearing a bag and sword pitt had refused to be one of the conductors of the impeachment and his commanding copious and sonorous eloquence was wanting to that great muster of various talents age and blindness had unfitted lord north for the duties of a public prosecutor and his friends were left without the help of his excellent sense his tact and his urbanity but in spite of the absence of these two distinguished members of the lower house the box in which the managers stood contained an array of speakers such as perhaps had not appeared together since the great age of athenian eloquence there were fox and sheridan the english demosthenes and the english hyperides there was burke ignorant indeed or negligent of the art of adapting his reasonings and his style to the capacity and taste of his hearers but in amplitude of comprehension and richness of imagination superior to every orator ancient or modern there with eyes reverentially fixed on burke appeared the finest gentleman of the age his form developed by every manly exercise his face beaming with intelligence and spirit the ingenious the chivalrous the high-souled wyndham nor though surrounded by such men did the youngest manager pass unnoticed at an age when most of those who distinguish themselves in life are still contending for prizes and fellowships at college he had won for himself a conspicuous place in parliament no advantage of fortune or connection was wanting that could set off to the height his splendid talents and his unblemished honour at twenty-three he had been thought worthy to be ranked with the veteran statesmen who appeared as the delegates of the british commons at the bar of the british nobility all who stood at that bar save him alone are gone culprit advocates accusers to the generation which is now in the vigour of life he is the sole representative of a great age which has passed away but those who within the last ten years have listened with delight till the morning sun shone on the tapestries of the house of lords to the lofty and animated eloquence of charles earl grey are able to form some estimate of the powers of a race of men among whom he was not the foremost the charges and the answers of hastings were first read the ceremony occupied two whole days and was rendered less tedious than it would otherwise have been by the silver voice and just emphasis of cowper the clerk of the court a near relation of the amiable poet on the third day burke rose four sittings were occupied by his opening speech which was intended to be a general introduction to all the charges with an exuberance of thought and a splendour of diction which more than satisfied the highly raised expectation of the audience 
he described the character and institutions of the natives of india recounted the circumstances in which the asiatic empire of britain had originated and set forth the constitution of the company and of the english presidencies having thus attempted to communicate to his hearers an idea of eastern society as vivid as that which existed in his own mind he proceeded to arraign the administration of hastings as systematically conducted in defiance of morality and public law the energy and pathos of the great orator extorted expressions of unwanted admiration from the stern and hostile chancellor and for a moment seemed to pierce even the resolute heart of the defendant the ladies in the galleries unaccustomed to such displays of eloquence excited by the solemnity of the occasion and perhaps not unwilling to display their taste and sensibility were in a state of uncontrollable emotion handkerchiefs were pulled out smelling bottles were handed round hysterical sobs and screams were heard and mrs sheridan was carried out in a fit at length the orator concluded raising his voice till the old arches of irish oak resounded therefore said he hath it with all confidence been ordered by the commons of great britain that i impeach warren hastings of high crimes and misdemeanours i impeach him in the name of the commons house of parliament whose trust he has betrayed i impeach him in the name of the english nation whose ancient honour he has sullied i impeach him in the name of the people of india whose rights he has trodden under foot and whose country he has turned into a desert lastly in the name of human nature itself in the name of both sexes in the name of every age in the name of every rank i impeach the common enemy and oppressor of all when the deep murmur of various emotions had subsided mr fox rose to address the lords respecting the course of proceeding to be followed the wish of the accusers was that the court would bring to a close the investigation of the first charge before the second was opened the wish of hastings and of his counsel was that the manager should open all the charges and produce all the evidence for the prosecution before the defence began the lords retired to their own house to consider the question the chancellor took the side of hastings lord loughborough who was now in opposition supported the demand of the managers the division showed which way the inclination of the tribunal leaned a majority of near three to one decided in favour of the course for which hastings contended when the court sat again mr fox assisted by mr grey opened the charge respecting chaita singh and several days were spent in reading papers and hearing witnesses the next article was that relating to the princesses of oude the conduct of this part of the case was entrusted to sheridan the curiosity of the public to hear him was unbounded his sparkling and highly finished declamation lasted two days but the hall was crowded to suffocation during the whole time it was said that fifty guineas had been paid for a single ticket sheridan when he concluded contrived with a knowledge of stage effect which his father might have envied to sink back as if exhausted into the arms of burke who hugged him with the energy of generous admiration june was now far advanced the session could not last much longer and the progress which had been made in the impeachment was not very satisfactory 
There were twenty charges. On two only of these had even the case for the prosecution been heard, and it was now a year since Hastings had been admitted to bail. The interest taken by the public in the trial was great when the court began to sit, and rose to the height when Sheridan spoke on the charge relating to the Begums. From that time the excitement went down fast. The spectacle had lost the attraction of novelty. The great displays of rhetoric were over. What was behind was not of a nature to entice men of letters from their books in the morning, or to tempt ladies who had left the masquerade at two to be out of bed before eight. There remained examinations and cross-examinations. There remained statements of accounts. There remained the reading of papers filled with words unintelligible to English ears, with lacs and crores, zemindars and omils, sunuds and peruanas, jagirs and nuzurs. There remained bickerings, not always carried on with the best taste or with the best temper, between the managers of the impeachment and the counsel for the defence, particularly between Mr. Burke and Mr. Law. There remained the endless marches and countermarches of the peers between their house and the hall, for as often as a point of law was to be discussed, their lordships retired to discuss it apart, and the consequence was, as a peer wittily said, that the judges walked and the trial stood still. It is to be added that in the spring of 1788, when the trial commenced, no important question, either of domestic or foreign policy, occupied the public mind. The proceeding in Westminster Hall, therefore, naturally attracted most of the attention of Parliament and of the public. It was the one great event of that season. But in the following year, the King's illness, the debates on the Regency, and the expectation of a change of ministry completely diverted public attention from Indian affairs. And within a fortnight after George the Third had returned thanks in St. Paul's for his recovery, the States-General of France met at Versailles. In the midst of the agitation produced by these events, the impeachment was for a time almost forgotten. The trial in the hall went on languidly. In the session of 1788, when the proceedings had the interest of novelty, and when the peers had little other business before them, only thirty-five days were given to the impeachment. In 1789 the Regency Bill occupied the Upper House till the session was far advanced. When the King recovered, the circuits were beginning. The judges left town, the lords waited for the return of the oracles of jurisprudence, and the consequence was that during the whole year only seventeen days were given to the case of Hastings. It was clear that the matter would be protracted to a length unprecedented in the annals of criminal law. In truth, it is impossible to deny that impeachment, though it is a fine ceremony, and though it may have been useful in the seventeenth century, is not a proceeding from which much good can now be expected. Whatever confidence may be placed in the decision of the peers on an appeal arising out of ordinary litigation, it is certain that no man has the least confidence in their impartiality when a great public functionary charged with a great state crime is brought to their bar. They are all politicians. There is hardly one among them whose vote on an impeachment may not be confidently predicted before a witness has been examined, and even if it were possible to rely on their justice, 
they would still be quite unfit to try such a cause as that of Hastings. They sit only during half the year. They have to transact much legislative and much judicial business. The law lords, whose advice is required to guide the unlearned majority, are employed daily in administering justice elsewhere. It is impossible, therefore, that during a busy session the Upper House should give more than a few days to an impeachment. To expect that their lordships would give up partridge-shooting in order to bring the greatest delinquent to speedy justice, or to relieve accused innocence by speedy acquittal, would be unreasonable indeed. A well-constituted tribunal, sitting regularly six days in the week and nine hours in the day, would have brought the trial of Hastings to a close in less than three months. The Lords had not finished their work in seven years. The result ceased to be matter of doubt from the time when the Lords resolved that they would be guided by the rules of evidence which are received in the inferior courts of the realm. Those rules, it is well known, exclude much information which would be quite sufficient to determine the conduct of any reasonable man in the most important transactions of private life. These rules, at every assizes, save scores of culprits whom judges, jury, and spectators firmly believe to be guilty. But when those rules were rigidly applied to offences committed many years before, at the distance of many thousands of miles, conviction was, of course, out of the question. We do not blame the accused and his counsel for availing themselves of every legal advantage in order to obtain an acquittal, but it is clear that an acquittal so obtained cannot be pleaded in the bar of the judgment of history. Several attempts were made by the friends of Hastings to put a stop to the trial. In 1789 they proposed a vote of censure upon Burke for some violent language which he had used respecting the death of Nuncomar and the connection between Hastings and Impey. Burke was then unpopular in the last degree, both with the house and with the country. The asperity and indecency of some expressions which he had used during the debates on the Regency had annoyed even his warmest friends. The vote of censure was carried, and those who had moved it hoped that the managers would resign in disgust. Burke was deeply hurt, but his zeal for what he considered as the cause of justice and mercy triumphed over his personal feelings. He received the censure of the House with dignity and meekness, and declared that no personal mortification or humiliation should induce him to flinch from the sacred duty which he had undertaken. In the following year the Parliament was dissolved, and the friends of Hastings entertained a hope that the new House of Commons might not be disposed to go on with the impeachment. They began by maintaining that the whole proceeding was terminated by the dissolution. Defeated on this point, they made a direct motion that the impeachment should be dropped, but they were defeated by the combined forces of the government and the opposition. It was, however, resolved that for the sake of expedition, many of the articles should be withdrawn. In truth, had not some such measure been adopted, the trial would have lasted till the defendant was in his grave. At length, in the spring of 1795, the decision was pronounced near eight years after Hastings had been brought by the sergeant-at-arms of the Commons to the bar of the Lords. On the last day of this great procedure, the public curiosity, long suspended, seemed to be revived. Anxiety about the judgment there could be none, 
for it had been fully ascertained that there was a great majority for the defendant. Nevertheless, many wished to see the pageant, and the hall was as much crowded as on the first day. But those who, having been present on the first day, now bore a part of the proceedings of the last, were few, and most of those few were altered men. As Hastings himself said, the arraignment had taken place before one generation, and the judgment was pronounced by another. The spectator could not look at the woolsack, or at the red benches of the peers, or at the green benches of the commons, without seeing something that reminded him of the instability of all human beings, of the instability of power and fame and life, of the more lamentable instability of friendship. The great seal was borne before Lord Loughborough, who, when the trial commenced, was a fierce opponent of Mr. Pitt's government, and who was now a member of that government, while Thurlow, who presided in the court when it first sat, estranged from all his old allies, sat scowling among the junior barons. Of about a hundred and sixty nobles who walked in the procession on the first day, sixty had been laid in their family vaults. Still more affecting must have been the sight of the manager's box. What had become of that fair fellowship, so closely bound together by public and private ties, so resplendent with every talent and accomplishment? It had been scattered by calamities more bitter than the bitterness of death. The great chiefs were still living, and still in the full vigour of their genius, but their friendship was at an end. It had been violently and publicly dissolved, with tears and stormy reproaches. If those men, once so dear to each other, were now compelled to meet for the purpose of managing the impeachment, they met as strangers whom public business had brought together, and behaved to each other with cold and distant civility. Burke had, in his vortex, whirled away Wyndham. Fox had been followed by Sheridan and Gray. Only twenty-nine peers voted. Of these, only six found Hastings guilty on the charges relating to Cheta Singh and to the Begums. On the other charges, the majority in his favour was still greater. On some, he was unanimously absolved. He was then called to the bar, was informed from the woolsack that the lords had acquitted him, and was solemnly discharged. He bowed respectfully and retired. End of chapter 8